You're listening to Center Church Podcast. At Center Church, we strive to keep Jesus at the center of everything we do. You're about to hear a message from our pastor, Matthew Edwards. But before you do, we want to invite you to visit our website at centercharlotte.org. There you can sign up for our weekly emails and receive new content as we release it. Secondly, we want to invite you to visit our pastor's blog at matthewedwards.cc. And finally, if this podcast ministered to you in any way, go ahead and subscribe and you'll be the first to know when we release more content in the future. Thanks for listening in and be blessed. As promised, I'm not going to go very long this morning, but let's open up in prayer real quick. Heavenly Father, I thank you for all that you have done and all that you are doing and all that you are continuing to do in our lives. And Father, I thank you that it's you that has brought us this far. We are not where we are today because we're great people, because we're good, or because we have worked hard. We are where we are because you have favored us. And Father, you have favored us because you love us. I thank you that it has nothing to do with us, but simply because you love us, you put your favor on us. So Father, this morning we're drawing on your love. And Lord, I ask that they would not take anything that I have for them, but only take what you have for them this morning. And I thank you, Father, that you're getting me out the way so that they can see Jesus clearly. In Jesus' name, everyone said? Amen. Amen. All right, um, this morning I was going to, I debated a lot about where to go, where to start. Um, And uh, I felt like having a refresher course, in a sense, on grace. Um, As I've said in the past, I don't like the fact that uh, in in the church environment or in the church atmosphere, there are certain churches that you would say this is a grace church. I, I don't like that at all. To me, grace is the only antidote. Grace is the only medicine. Grace is the only solution. And it's always interested me. It's like, for example, when you go to a hospital, you don't ask, do you have medicine? You don't ask that. That's a dumb question. It's a hospital because there is medicine. There's doctors. If there's no medicine there, they're smart to shut the doors and say, we're not a hospital right now. We can't help you. We don't have medicine. And I feel the same way about grace. Grace is the only antidote to everything that we can encounter in life. Everything. And simply put, grace is the exchange at the cross. When Jesus took all that we are, the Bible says literally, he became all that we are. At the cross, he died not just for us, but he died as us. And in God's eyes, when Christ was on the cross, you have died. Once you receive what Christ did, you you have died. You've been judged for all your sin. You have died. Now, the beauty of all this is Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ and yet I live. So even though we didn't have to suffer like Christ, Christ's suffering avails for us. So God sees us in Christ as dead. But when Christ was buried, we're in Christ when he was suffered. We're in Christ when he was buried. But when Christ was raised from the dead, all of us are raised from the dead in Christ. And the beauty of grace is this. Jesus took all that we deserve so that today we can get all that Jesus deserves. And all that Jesus deserves is the the best. (laughs) You know, I got into a conversation with a friend of mine the other night. He was trying to get a job, and he, he said this. He said, Matthew, he's, and he, he was almost in tears. He was just broken up. He said, I've been trying to get a job in this area, in that area, and I have a degree in this particular area, and I'm finding out that people who I know that are less qualified are getting the job, and I'm not getting it. And I felt bad for a moment, and he went on and on, but Matthew, you don't understand. I have this degree. I have this. I have, I have this much experience, and he went on and on and on. Now, I'm pretty sure all of us have heard it's not what you know, it's who you know. And in today's day and age, you can get into a job if you know someone in the job already, right? So you always try to get a referral from someone you know. But I was telling him, we had a, a, an amazing testimony of a woman who is not here this morning. Uh, I don't think she cares if I tell it. 
uh, I won't say her name. If you were here on a Wednesday night, you know who it was. But anyways, she was trying to get a job, um, and the place where she was working, she was making a little bit less than her qualification gave her, but she was making good money, and she liked it. And so as the time came, the job or the place where she was working was about to move. And as they were about to move, she said, uh, I have to find another job somewhere else. And she said, you know what? I have this qualification. I have this degree. I have all these degrees. I have this. And I deserve X number of dollars. So I'm believing God. I'm going to get a job making this much money because this is what I deserve. And when she told us, I didn't say anything. I just kind of kept my mouth shut. I said, okay, cool. So we just kept preaching grace. She kept coming every Sunday and every Wednesday. And finally, one night, she said she was at home and she heard a voice in her head say, if you want what you deserve, I'll give you what you deserve. But why not get what Jesus deserves? And she stopped and she said, you're right. It's not about what I deserve. It's about what Christ deserves because I'm in Christ. And she said it was around the next day, within the next 48 hours, somewhere in that time frame, she got a call from a place that had offered her less. They changed the number and called her and said, we're going to give you more than what you deserve. We just want you to come work for us. Now, again, it's a change in mindset. At the end of the day, it's not what I deserve. It's what Christ deserves. All right. And grace says Jesus took it all. Um, there's a verse. I'm not. It's not in my notes. <laughs> there's a verse that says, surely God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. Now, this is a verse that uh, for me, it was a little controversial when I was open up to grace. And the reason why I say that is this. If we take the principle that says Jesus took all that I deserve. And I'll take all that he deserves. The next question is, what if I do something bad? What if I do something wrong? Well, surely the Bible says, New Testament, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. Right? But the problem with that verse is this. Interpret everything in its context. The context before talks about money. The context after talks about money. It's actually in Galatians, the last chapter. And when you understand that, you realize Jesus took the harvest of everything that I deserve. All the bad things I have sowed in the past and all the bad things I will do in the, in the future, Jesus took the harvest of it all. And it freed me from being afraid of God. Now, when I interpret that verse, God shall not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he'll also reap. I realize in the context it's talking about money. Now, I'm not here to talk about money this morning. We're here to talk about grace. <laughs> now, in the Old Testament, there's an interesting truth. When it comes to grace, from the time of Genesis up until the time of Exodus chapter 20, when God gave the Ten Commandments, all right, uh, until the Ten Commandments showed up, that was a time period of grace, right? It was a time period of grace. Now, grace, by definition, just so that we all understand, grace is unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor, all right? The only way to be disqualified from unearned favor is to earn it. Does that make sense? The only way to be disqualified from undeserved favor is to deserve it. Does that make sense? All right. Now, it seems simple, but you'd be shocked at how many believers miss that. To, just being honest, how many believers miss that? All right. So when God starts the beginning of the world all the way up to Exodus chapter 20, there's a period of grace. But in truth, if you look at that whole picture, that whole dynamic, what you'll find is this. God could not give grace as much as he wanted to. He could only give grace a little bit at a time. Now, today we know that Jesus is the personification of grace, all right? He is grace personified. That's Christ. But again, Christ had not yet come. So because Christ hadn't come, God couldn't just give grace to everyone, and he couldn't give as much grace as he wanted to. But there's something about grace that's interesting. Look at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, <coughs> verse 26. Is it on there? I got you. Too late. I beat you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 26. 
And that is a little bit blurry. Can you work on that for me? Can you try to turn that? Hold on. And I'm only going to make it worse. Is that a little bit better? It's all right. I'm going to read it to you. It doesn't matter. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Now keep in mind, notice how it starts off. You see your calling, brethren. Now stop for a moment. Paul is talking to the church. And in talking to the church, Paul says, notice the calling that's on your life. Notice the calling that's on your life. Notice how and when God called you. That not many of you are wise, according to the flesh. Not many of you are mighty or strong. Not many are noble. Okay, does that make sense? Not many of you are wise. Now let me say this. I'm not wise. And and hopefully by the end of the message you, you agree you're not wise either. Okay, Nevertheless. Verse 27, but God has chosen, notice how God chooses. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to, sh- to, put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. You see a pattern here. God likes to choose the bottom of the barrel. God likes to choose the least expected. God likes to choose people who are absolutely nothing. And everyone else has written that person off. And God loves to choose those people and make them the greatest. All right. Then it says, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Now, what's the importance here? Realize this. When God called you, God didn't call you because you were beautiful. Thank you for that. God God did not call you because you look good. God didn't even call you because he thought, man, this is going to be a great person. If I, if, if I can get this person to, to, to receive the finished work of the cross, they'll make a huge impact. That is not why God called you. In fact, let's go a little bit deeper. God did not call you so that you would live right. Now, that's one of the things I couldn't say in the church years ago. But now we have our own church. I can say what I want. God did not call you so that you would change and live right. He called you because he loves you. He called you because you're the least qualified for the position. And you know what God loves? When you're the least qualified for the position, when you stand before him and you know there's nothing I did to deserve this. I didn't do anything for this. This was just a gift from the one who loves me. Now when people look at you, you can't say it was me. How can you brag, especially in the presence of God? Notice what it says. No man can glory in his presence. You can't brag in his presence if you know it was a gift. Now, in the past, we talked about gifts. And let me, let me say this and we'll move on. If I give a gift to my wife, all right, I give a gift to my wife, and I say, honey, I expect you to make dinner for me the next five nights in a row because I gave you this gift. I mean, that's not a gift. Now, a gift given with a stipulation is not a gift. That's so sad. Only the women, only the women make comments. Okay. <laughs> a gift given with a stipulation is not a gift. A gift given with a stipulation is a bribe. All right? Now, think about this. If we preach in the church that God sent Jesus to die for you and die as you so that you will live right. We're bribing people. And we're making God look like he's trying to bribe people in the church. Now, who does God need to bribe? I mean, come on. All right. But the reverse side is what? If I give a gift and there's no stipulations, if I give her something, then that's the true definition of a gift. It comes with no strings attached. I give it because I love you. Now, the truth of grace is this. Grace says it's a gift. I don't care what you do with it. It's a gift. I'm giving it to you because I love you. And then the giver steps back. Now the one who's received the gift is on you. Likewise, in the church, we're not here to tell you how to live and tell you how to do it and what not to do. We have the Ten Commandments for that. 
My job is not to give you that. My job is to tell you, guess what? Your heavenly father loves you. And now the gift is in your hands. The beauty of grace is this. Grace takes the leap of faith. See, if we preach the law, what we're doing is this. I'm putting my trust in your flesh to live right. But if I stop preaching the law and I preach the love of God, you become like what Paul said. Paul said, the love of Christ compels me. The love of Christ compels me. See, I don't have, Christina doesn't have to tell me, Matthew, around the corner, there's a, there's, a, there's a pretty woman. Don't look at her. And when you go a little bit farther down the street, there's another one. Don't look at her either. So we go into the grocery store. She says, oh, close your eyes real quick. Okay, eyes closed. Does it make sense? She doesn't have to tell me how to live. She doesn't have to tell me this is what it means to be a good husband. Don't look. Don't look. She doesn't have to. You know why? Because I love her. Does that make sense? It's the same thing with God. When you know what he's done for you, you fall in love with him. And when you fall in love with him, no one has to tell you how to be a good Christian. No one has to tell you how to be a good believer. The love of Christ will compel you. All right? Now, how in the world did we get on this? Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, notice again the pattern. God chooses the least. God chooses the least. Now, let me show you something interesting that I, I never put together before. In Jeremiah 31, when it comes to the new covenant, all right, when it comes to the new covenant, not the old, with the Ten Commandments. Am I in the way? As they motion for me to move to the side. <laughs> well, I can't stand in the kitchen. I mean, there's always an option, right? <laughs> I don't like standing over here. All right. We have the old covenant, which was the law. <laughs> During the time period of the law, God says, all right. He's speaking through the mouth of Jeremiah. God says this. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. What covenant was that? The Ten Commandments. All right. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every brother and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, this whole truth of the new covenant, this new covenant that God is going to establish, all of it hinges on this last statement right here. For, for or because, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The old covenant says, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not, ten times, right? Now, if I give you the Ten Commandments and you walk out the door, the first thing you're going to think of is what? I shall not, I shall not, I shall not, correct? You become I-centered. You become self-centered. That's the problem today. We have too many people who are self-centered. But the moment you enter into the new covenant and you realize Christ has initiated the new covenant, it's no longer God saying, you shall not, you shall not. Now it's God saying, I will, I will, I will, I will. In fact, five times he says it, which is the number of grace. I will. And it all hinges on what? I will forgive their iniquity and their sins I will remember no more. Now notice, I put this in gold because this is the, the focus I want you to see. It says, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. God loves to start at the least and then work his way up to the greatest. Now, again, if you understand this, you'll say, I am the least. <laughs> I am the least. I am the least. And I take pride in the fact that I am the least. There's a lot of things I don't know. But one of my favorite verses in Ecclesiastes is this. The race is not to the swift, 
nor is the battle to the strong, nor victory to the one that's the smartest. But time and chance happen to them all. I know Michael Jordan is the greatest player in basketball history. We're not going to debate that. Nevertheless, I know, right? And Kobe Bryant is the, okay, maybe not. But anyways, (laughs) maybe not. Never mind. He was at one point. The point I'm trying to make is this. There is somebody somewhere who is better than him. And there's someone somewhere who's better than him. The race is not to the swift. Just because the man run the race does not mean he's the fastest one in the world. He was just the fastest one in that race. But the point I'm trying to make is this. Time and chance happen to them all. And the point God is trying to make is this. It doesn't mean just because you're the strongest that you will win. doesn't mean just because you're the fastest that you'll win. doesn't even mean because you're the strongest you'll win. It means this. Time and chance are in my hands. And I can cause time and chance to work for you. At the end of the day, it's not about all my qualifications. It's about how he sees me. And if I understand that, then time and chance can work in my favor. Amen? Now, God loves to start from the least of them to the greatest. Now, look at this one more. Jesus is talking in the sermon. What is this? Not sermon on the mount. Jesus is giving a parable, right? And at the end of the parable, Jesus, he, he says this to them. He says, talking to his disciples, he said, In that day, in the day when, when, when they stand before the throne and, and the shepherd, the great shepherd, separates from the sheep and the goats, He says this, I'll say to those who are the sheep, I'll say this, when you saw me, you fed me. And and when you saw me with no clothes, you saw me hungry, you fed me. When you saw me with no clothes, you put clothes on me. And when you saw I was homeless, you brought me in. And he says this, so it'll be good for you in the end. It'll be good for you. But his disciples are standing there. and, And then Jesus says this, on that day when that happens, he says, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Now, stop for a moment. I love this because Jesus is telling this this parable to them. And he says, on the day that God gives this amazing reward to the people, the people will respond to him. Now, the disciples are just listening. They're not asking this. Jesus says, on that day, they will ask him. And this is what the Lord will say to them. And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. I love that. I love that. You know what this tells me? And I was so excited. I had to put these three together. You know what this tells me? This tells me whenever you do something based on the least of these, you're tapping into God's heart. Think about it. Every time you do something for someone who doesn't deserve it, you are tapping into God's heart. Every time. Okay, so, and you know what, you know what I love? You know what I love about this? Jesus says that they're going to ask this on that day. You know what that means? That means every time you did something for someone who didn't deserve it, every time you did it, you didn't do it saying, okay, Lord, I'm going to do this for you. But Jesus says, you're not even going to be conscious that you're doing it for me. I believe that grace has such an impact in a person's life that it causes them to do things. It inspires them and it compels them to do things, good things. And you're not even aware of that you're doing something good. That's, to me, that's a real believer. When you stop trying to do good things to please God and you step into an area where you're doing good things because you're compelled to. How can I see this person suffering and not do something? How can I see this person hungry and not do something? How can I see this person with no clothes and not give? That's, to me, that's a real believer. You stop trying to do good things to impress God. You stop trying to do good things to impress people in the church. You just start doing good things because you have no other choice. The love of God. John said it like this. We love because he first loved us. Isn't that interesting? Now, (laughs) if we're going to look at a simple definition of grace, and before we do, keep in mind, in the Old Testament, after God gave the law, 
in Exodus chapter 20, when God gave the law, God said in the, in the tabernacle where I am, I'm going to rest on the mercy seat, right? The presence of God rested in the mercy seat. And only one person could go into the presence of God one time a year. That was the high priest, remember? And when he came in, the Bible says he had to bring blood with him and he would have to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And when he sprinkled the blood seven times on the mercy seat, he would make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, keep in mind, when the high priest came into the presence of God, came into that, that holy of holies where God was, all right, where the mercy seat was, when he came in, I submit to you, he was probably terrified because the Bible says if he messed up in one area, he would die. If he didn't do one thing right, he would die. They probably had a checklist. In fact, I'm pretty sure they probably had a checklist. Don't forget to wear the headpiece the right way. Don't forget to wear the breastplate the right way. Don't forget to make sure all the bells make noise. Because if one bell's not making noise, you're probably going to die. And <laughs> when he went into the presence of God, everything was, if you don't do it right, you're going to die. And he was terrified. But the point of him going in was to represent the people and to make atonement for their sin. Now, atonement does not mean sin has been paid for. Atonement means sin has been pushed to the side. All right? Now, in the old, the high priest was terrified when he went in. Now, today, Jesus is our high priest. And the Bible says when Jesus went in, he didn't shed the blood of bulls and goats, but he shed his own blood for all of us. And when he came in, he did not make atonement for our sins. He made a payment for our sins. Our sins have not been pushed to the side. Our sins have been judged. They have been judged. All our sin has been judged. And when that happened... Now the Bible says this, we don't have to be afraid and terrified to come in like the high priest in the old. Now we have boldness to enter by the holy, near the holiest by the blood of a new covenant. All right. So now we have boldness to come in. But the beauty of this is this. In the old, all they had was the mercy seat. Now there's a difference between mercy and grace. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. All right. When Christina burns the food, I give her mercy. She does not get what she deserves. All right. <laughs> can I tell Can I tell it? <laughs> I've been holding this one. I told some people last week. I tell some people, Christina worships me when I'm at home. Did you know that? Y'all laugh, but she gives me burnt offerings every night. <laughs> Anyways, all right, moving right along. <laughs> Anyways, the mercy seat. They had the mercy seat. And, oh, now mercy is not getting what you deserve, all right? Not getting what you deserve. But that's the best that they could get. When the high priest went in, the best he could get from God for the people was mercy. God don't give them what they deserve. That's the best he could do. But do you realize when Jesus went in, the Bible does not say in the New Testament, come boldly to the mercy seat. It does not say that. You know what it says? Come boldly to the throne of grace, where you will receive both mercy and grace in the time of need. Now, what is the difference between mercy and grace? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Thank God for mercy. But on the other hand, we have grace. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. Undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor. Right? So the beauty of it is this. In the past, they could only get mercy. Now, in the present, we can get grace and mercy. All right? Now, let's give a simple, clear definition of grace so that there's no confusion. Uh, from the words of Paul himself. Romans chapter 11, verse 6 says... If by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. I know that was deep, right? <laughs> Very deep. 
But again, keep in mind, grace is a changing of the mindset. You know that John, John the Baptist, who preceded Christ, he went around preaching, repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And for years, I always thought repent means get on your knees and cry out to God, confess all your sin, repent. Only to find out that repent in the Greek actually means change your mind. Change your mind. And so what John was preaching was this, change your mind, because the kingdom of heaven is almost here. The way you thought you were going to receive salvation was because of your good works. You were wrong. The way you will receive salvation is by what you believe. Faith alone. So what you see right here is, look, grace changes the mindset. If it's by grace, if it's by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it's of works, it's no longer of grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Now, I have a lot I want to share on this, but I'm not, like I said, for the sake of time. If you fast forward to Colossians chapter 4, and I'm going to bring, uh, yeah, this is, this is the downhill part. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. I have a lot I want to share, but I'm not. Like I said, I'm going to make sure we don't go long today. Colossians chapter 4. Now, in Colossians chapter 4, Paul brings up an interesting point. And we have shared this in our church. Keep in mind, again, grace and works are opposites. They're counter. In the past, I think we've shared before, uh, look at it in this perspective. Let's say, um, in fact, I'm going I'm to share this. I was not, but I am. <laughs> I was talking with a good friend of mine who made a statement once, and we were talking about grace, and he said this, Matthew, some people are taking grace too far. They take grace too far. Now, he didn't say the name of one of my favorite preachers, Joseph Prince, but he implied they take grace a little too far. Now, I was listening, and I said, what do you mean? And my friend said this. He said, Matthew, I know that the Bible says it's by grace that we are saved. Now, how many of you know, again, God did not save you because you're good. And he did not save you so that you would be good. God saved you because he loved you. That's a gift. Your salvation is a gift, right? So if my salvation is a gift, then it is by grace I have been saved, correct? And so grace, in in, in the church perspective, how it has been is grace is always a way to catch me. In other words, when I fall into sin, grace catches me and brings me back to where I once was. Now, the problem with that is this. God's grace always catches me. In fact, one of my favorite worship songs is from the inside out. And one of the the lyrics from the inside out says this. A thousand times I've failed, still your mercy remains. And should I stumble again, still I'm caught in your grace. Grace is always there to catch you every time you fall. Grace will always bring you higher than you were before you fell. God's grace is that awesome. But the problem with the church is this. If we only see grace as a net to catch us when we fall, we miss, I believe, the other half of what Christ wanted to do. When Christ died at the cross, everything that Christ did, we're still learning it. And grace doesn't just catch us. Grace propels us deeper into what God wants for us. For example, Christina is the manifestation of the grace of God in my life. I don't deserve Christina. Now, have I, have I failed in our relationship before we got married? She said nothing. Thank you, Jesus. I have failed. I have failed. I know myself. I have failed. So let me say this. Did grace catch me? Yes, grace caught me. But you know what grace did? Grace made this girl my wife. So she is the manifestation of God's grace. I don't deserve her. Did grace catch me? Yes. But grace also gave me more. Does it make sense? So grace doesn't just catch us. It gives us more. It propels us deeper into what God wants us to have. All right. So don't just look at grace as a net. Look at grace as the propeller pushing you deeper into it. Now, when you understand that, keep in mind what Paul's about to say. All right. Keep that in mind. What Paul says in Colossians chapter four, 
Paul says, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Verse 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Now, we've shared on this before, and I'm not going to stay here very long. I want to show you the, 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 the equivalent or the type in a sense. Notice what Paul says. Let your speech always be with grace. Now, why does Paul say that? Why does he say that? All right. When you're in public and you open your mouth and you say, that person deserves, he, gets, he deserves what he's getting. I hope he gets what he deserves. All right. When someone bumps into you and, and you scream out and you have all kinds of words coming out of your mouth. <laughs> all right. How many of you know those blessed words <laughs> when they come out of your mouth? All right. How many of you know that's not letting everything that comes out of your mouth full of grace but the problem is this when people look at you everything that comes out of your mouth should be gracious so when someone does you wrong in public stop hold your words <laughs> and give them grace all right now i'm saying that very vaguely we'll, we'll look at that another time but the point i'm trying to make is this paul says let your speech always be with grace make sure when you're in public when you're talking to people that everything that comes out of your mouth is not i hope they get what they deserve Instead of that, I hope they get what they don't deserve. Anyways, after he says that, let your speech always be with grace. Now notice the comma, comma, season with salt. Now do you see that season with salt is another way of saying let your speech always be with grace. Do you see that? In other words, the two, salt is a picture of grace. It's a type of grace in a sense. When Paul makes a statement of grace, he says, comma, season with salt. Whenever your, your, your conversation is full of grace, it's a conversation that's seasoned with salt. I don't want to keep repeating that. It's not like a broken recorder. But does everybody understand? Grace and salt are a type of each other in a sense. Now, about two or three years ago when I saw this, I was so excited. I was actually, I was cutting grass and this verse came to me. And I remember, I remember exactly where I was. And when I, when I saw it in my head, I saw the verse. All of a sudden I said, God, salt and grace are the same. They're a type of one another. Now, as soon as I saw that, I knew exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said something in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, when I was a kid, I was taught this. And no one gave me a clear definition of what that meant. In children's church, I always said, you're the salt of the earth. And then just kept going to the next verse. The next verse says, you're the light of the world. Now, everybody wants to talk about the light of the world. But nobody wants to talk about verse 13. <laughs> Now, I can't blame them because they didn't know. Back then, grace was not a very understood concept. It's not a very understood revelation. But now, by the grace of God, we're understanding grace more. All right? Now, when I understood grace and salt are a type of one another, all of a sudden, this verse began to make sense to me. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. If salt is grace, what is Jesus really saying? You are the grace of the earth. Once I'm gone, you're going to be the grace on the earth. That's it. And what does he say? But if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Do you know that salt can lose its flavor and still keep its substance? It's not like sugar. Sugar can melt and dissolve into something. But salt can lose its flavor and still keep its substance. Now, very interesting, he calls us that and uses that analogy. Because you know what happens? If salt loses its flavor, what is it good for? It's good for nothing. And I'm telling you, all of a sudden, that verse became so real to me. A believer who has no grace is of no benefit to God. How can God use you when you have no grace? How can God use you when you have no grace? How can you be a picture of Christ to a lost and dying world in a world that, that needs the love of God? 
They don't need the judgment, the fire, and the brimstone. That, that time is past. What they need right now is the grace of God. Because grace turns men's heart to believe the truth. Grace compels people to live according to the love that God has for them. People don't need fire and brimstone. What they need to know is that they have a heavenly father that loves them. And all you have to do is, all you have to do is receive what Christ did. And when you receive what Christ did, you find that his arms were open the whole time. It's like last Sunday. You become like Ruth, realizing everything that has happened in your life was just the breadcrumbs leading you to your heavenly Boaz. Does that make sense? So to a lost and dying world, if you lose your grace, what good are you? You're no good. You're no good at all. And then this last verse started to make sense last night. Notice what he says. But to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You ever seen a believer? It seems like they're always getting beat up by the world. (laughs) Sad. Now, I'm not saying you'll never go through anything in life. I'm not saying that at all. Jesus said, I'm telling you in advance, there are going to be tough times ahead. But take heart because I've overcome the world. So that you'll have tough times. But there's a difference between having tough times and always being underneath somebody else's foot. And you know what the problem is? We've lost our saltiness. We've lost the grace aspect that makes us who we are in the beginning. But when you return to grace, you regain your saltiness. And then instead of being trampled underfoot, now you can be used. Isn't that good? Now, from there, all of a sudden, this is happening again. This was like two years ago. I started to see this, but it wasn't until later I started to dive deeper. And I said, okay, if salt is a type of grace, we understand that the old covenant truths are hidden. But in the new covenant, truths are revealed. Grace is a type of salt. That's the truth revealed. But if we go to the old covenant, we'll see salt and we'll understand the truth is concealed. So now we know salt and grace are one. Can we look at the old to bring out the new? Doesn't matter. I'm going to do it anyways. All right. Now, let's start in Leviticus chapter 2, and I only have two more places, and I'll close. Promise. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. God is giving instructions on all the offerings, and there are five total offerings. It takes five offerings to to depict completely and totally the one offering that Jesus gave. All of these offerings point to what Jesus Christ did. Now, in Leviticus chapter 2, we're going to look at the grain offering, the last sentence, talking about the grain offering. God is speaking to to the Levites, and he says this, Of every offering, of your grain offering, you shall season it with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. And then, this last part in gold is what gets me the most. It says, With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. It wasn't until he came to this that God says, It's almost like this. He talks about all the offerings. But then when he comes to the grain offering, he says, Oh, don't forget to put the salt in it. And you know what? Just so that you don't forget this, with every offering you offer, make sure there's salt included. Now, what does that mean? It means when Jesus died, don't take the grace part out of it. Don't take grace out of it. When you look at the cross, don't take the gracious side out of it. Again, the message that we taught years ago was this. Jesus died for you, so you better live for him. Now, Paul made a statement very similar to that. But Paul did not say, he died, so you better live for him. (laughs) Paul didn't say it that way. What Paul was saying was this, Christ died for me. How can I not live for him? Once the truth of what he's done for me is settles in my mind, all of a sudden I live for him. Not because you're demanding me to, but because from the inside I want to. It comes from the inside out. Does that make sense? So it's all by grace. Don't look at what Christ did apart from grace. If you do, you end up messed up. <laughs> now, look at this story in 2 Kings. Look at this interesting story in uh, 2 Kings about the prophet Elisha. All right. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 19 to 22. Now, at this point in the story in 2 Kings, if you don't know the story, you can go back and read it for yourself. 
But I just want to draw out the truth about the salt. All right. At this point, Elijah, his predecessor, his mentor, has already left. All right. He's already been taken up. And Elisha has received the mantle of Elijah. Now he's going out. As he goes out, it says, the men of the city said to Elisha, please notice the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees. But the water is bad and the ground barren. And he said, Elisha said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the source of the water and cast in the salt there and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From it there shall be no more death or barrenness. So the water remains healed to this day, according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. Now, just an interesting story about how Elisha performed a miracle using salt. But now that we understand what salt is a type and a shadow of, all of a sudden it makes sense to me even more. Do you know that a source of a water or a spring of water or even a well of water, for that matter, is always a picture of the tongue inside of a person? Did you know that? It's like, for example, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. Water comes out from within. All right. Uh, in James, James says it like this. The tongue uh, is an evil member. It is evil set among all of its members. Talking about your tongue. Then as he talks more about the tongue, he says this. Should out of the same spring come fresh water and salt water. And then he says, brethren, these things should not be so. In other words, what comes out of your mouth, your mouth is like a well of water, like a source of water. And what comes out of your mouth can either be fresh water that brings life or it can be salt water that kills. Now, salt water that kills is not in the type of grace in a sense. But does it make sense? Uh, uh, your mouth is a, is a source of water. Does that make sense? But notice how he fixes the water because nobody can drink it. What does he do? He says, bring me a bowl and put salt in it. Now, if you put salt in a pitcher of water, you're just going to have salt water. Does that make sense? You're only going to have salt water. But when God is put into the picture and we understand the type, all of a sudden what happens? It says, then he went out to the source of the water and cast salt in there. Do you know when you put grace in your mouth, you know what happens? It says this, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. Last Wednesday night, we were looking at Ezekiel chapter 47. And in Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel has a vision of water coming from the temple. And for, for a while, I was kind of confused. I said, how come there's no distinction that it comes from the throne or that it comes from the Ark of the Covenant? This, it just says water was coming from underneath the temple. And everywhere the water went, it healed the entire land. It caused trees to grow up. It caused fish to, to sprout forth. And everyone that took from this water source got healed. And for a long time, I was like, okay, God, what's, what's the picture? What's the type here? And then all of a sudden, I realized in Revelation chapter 22, John looks up and he says, there's no temple in this new, there's no temple in New Jerusalem. He says, no temple. The lamb himself is the temple. And I realized what Paul said. What did Paul say? This building is not the house of God. You are the house of God. Yes. You are the house of God. And the water that flows out of you can cause healing to spring forth everywhere it goes. Thank you, Jesus. What comes out of your mouth? If what comes out of your mouth is gracious, you can cause everything around you to come alive. I was like, man. <laughs> no. Uh, no. This is just a side note real quick. I'm not going to use this one. I've used that one before. Let's use this in Ezra chapter 7 and we'll close. Ezra chapter 7. As promised, last one. Ezra chapter 7 verse 21 to 23. Now at this particular time, just to give you the backstory, the children of Israel have been in captivity, but they have started to come back home from their Babylonian captivity, all right? As they're back home in their homeland and they're starting to rebuild, they start to rebuild the temple. Now, as they're rebuilding the temple, they run into a problem. We don't have enough resources to do this. Now, the first prophet or man of God goes before the king, and he prays this, God, give me favor with this king. 
And he has so much favor. I think it's King Darius. He has so much favor, favor with King Darius. The King Darius makes a decree. He says, we as a people, as this nation, will give the Jews everything they need to rebuild their temple. We'll give them everything they need to rebuild every, their whole city. And if any man comes behind and tries to stop them, you're going to take a piece of wood from his home and erect a, a, a gallow, gallows and to hang him on it with the wood that came from his house. Right? No one is to stop them from rebuilding their temple and their city. Now, as they do this, they go out and they start to do this. But Ezra comes up and he's a prophet himself. And the king at the time, King Artaxerxes in a different place, King Artaxerxes says, Ezra, do you want to go back home? And he says, yes. He says, fine, go back home, but take this decree with you. And it's another decree mirroring what King Darius said in a sense. No one is to stop them. But look at what the decree says uh, that comes from King Artaxerxes in the hands of Ezra as he comes home. Verse 21 says, and I, even I, Artaxerxes, the king, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently. Up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribed limit. Now, isn't it very interesting that he words it that way? Why not say take a... Uh, uh, a certain number of salt. Why not take a certain measurement of salt? But notice how he words it. This is an ungodly man. This is, not a, this is not a man who served the same God. This is an ungodly king. And notice how he words it. Salt without prescribed limit. Then he goes on to say, whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it, be, let it diligently be done for the house of God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and of his sons? He was smart enough to realize there's favor on these people. And if I keep fighting them, it's only going to hurt me. So he says, give them all the things that they need. But when it comes to salt, he says salt without prescribed limit. Now, when I was reading this, all of a sudden it occurred to me. Do you realize there is no limit on how much grace you can receive? And I'm going to close with this. There is no limit on how much grace you can receive. When I was a teenager, I was always taught, you keep coming to God with the same problems. And eventually he's going to say, I'm tired. Enough is enough. (laughs) And we always gave God this, this humanistic characteristic that says there's an end to this. One day I'm going to say, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm tired of this problem. I'm tired of this sin. I'm tired of forgiving you for the same thing. I'm tired of always trying to take you to this place and you keep fighting against me. But when I saw this, I got so excited because you know what? This is evidence that there is no limit to how much grace God will give you. Every time you fail, run back to him. Every time you fail, go to him. And I know you, sometimes, and I'll be the first one to tell you, I'm like, how can I go back for the same thing I just went back for? But the only power over sin is grace. And I'm telling you, the only thing that will put you higher than you were before you fell is grace. Amen? Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us through the finished work of the cross. And Father, I thank you that there is no limit to your grace. So this week, Father, everyone, as they leave this place, may they experience unearned, undeserved favor like never before. Unearned, undeserved favor like never before. Father, cause people to come into their lives, almost like a jump start. Cause people to come into their lives and give to them without reason and without cause. Cause people to do things for everyone in here without reason and without cause as evidence that you love them, number one, and that there is no limit to your grace. And Father, I thank you that as your word declares, we receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. I thank you that your people are reigning in life in every area of life. And Father, I thank you for what you have done through the cross. That it's all about Jesus and it has always been him. And we receive every good thing you have for us, Father. 
In Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Um, pray for the offering. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift. We thank you for the giver. And Lord, I thank you that every seed that is sown in this place and outside of this place, I thank you that Christ has received what we deserve. So I thank you that the harvest they receive will be what Christ deserves. Father, I thank you for a hundredfold increase in their life for every seed sown here and every seed sown out of this place because your favor is on them. And I thank you, Father, that you are multiplying the seed in their hand and in their storehouse. In Jesus' name, everyone said. Thanks for listening to Center Church Podcast. We trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to receive more of our content in the future, you can email us at centercharlotte at gmail.com or just visit our website at centercharlotte.org. Thanks for tuning in and may God's grace cover you in every area of your life.